as Pastor Hutchins said, in our sermon series on the Psalms of Ascent. We are to the seventh one now, gradually getting there. Psalm 126, this is God's Word, Him speaking to us, holy and inerrant. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Degeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for your word, your truth that you have given to us. And we pray now, would you open the eyes of our heart? In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had something so wonderful happen to you, something so joyous happened to you that it seemed too good to be true, that it felt like it was a dream, it was that good. Well, I can remember at least four times in my life that, that this has happened. That's with the birth of our four children. Each time as my wife and I sat there in the delivery room after birth, we would hold this child, this soul, <laughs> That the Lord had given to us to, to nurture, to raise, to love. And we couldn't believe it. You know, Lord, you sure you know what you were doing, <laughs> giving this to us? It was too good to be true. It was, it was a joyous time. It was a time of weeping, but weeping tears of joy. It was as if we were dreaming. We were so very happy. Well, this is the kind of joy that is going on here in Psalm 126. There is immense joy because God's, God had done a great work of restoration in the lives of his people, Israel. When it seemed like all hope was lost, God restored them. He brought restoration to them. Again, remember, this is the seventh psalm as we progress toward Jerusalem with the pilgrims, toward Zion to worship and as the pilgrims get closer and closer, they remember the great things that God had done for them in their history. They remember that when the Lord had restored them from basically ruin and destruction, and now they were getting to come home. They remembered God's covenant and how when it seemed there was no hope in exile, Yahweh, their God, restored them. And it brought them so much happiness. It brought them so much joy. It was as if they were dreaming. That's what this psalm is about. This psalm is about the joy of restoration. The happiness and the joy that this restoration brought the Israelites led them to, to praise and to prayer and to experience more of the wonderful promises of God. And as, as we walk through this psalm this morning, I want you to recall the joy that God has done in, in your life, the work of restoration that perhaps that He did with you, and recall and rejoice in God's good work in your life. And so as we do that, as we walk through this psalm, we're going to look at three parts. 
And they all start with P. We're kind of continuing on what Pastor Mercer did last week. We're going to look at uh, a praise for restoration, a prayer of restoration, and the promises of restoration. So praise, prayer, and promises. The first thing is there, a praise for restoration. Look with me in verse 1. It said, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. What is the psalmist talking about here? Well, for something that needed to be restored, that means something must have been broken, worn out, lost, not working, forgotten, abandoned, all those things. A restoration needed to take place. Well, you may recall from your Old Testament reading, from Old Testament history, that the history of Israel was not always a pleasant history. It was much like a roller coaster. And that roller coaster was often often in the valleys. It was mostly bad things, hard things, deep, dark valleys. And in one such period of time in the history of Israel, their sin and rebellion and idolatry had gotten so bad that God raised up the Babylonians to, to conquer them, to destroy their land, to destroy their temple and to carry them off into exile to live in Babylon. I mean, that would be like somebody coming and conquering us and taking us to Alabama. Sounds, sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> this period of, of history and exile that the Israelites lived in is recorded for us in the, the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. This history is about their time in exile. Again, away from the Holy Land, away from the temple, away from worship away from all those good things that God had given them. But in God's sweet providence and his loving kindness to a nation, after 70 years in exile, in captivity, he raised up a Persian king to destroy the Babylonians and to let them go, and to let them go back home to the Holy Land. And most of those who had come back after 70 years, they had never seen Jerusalem or Zion. They'd only heard about it. It was, it was a dream to them. They'd only heard of the wonderful promises of God and what life was like in Zion. And this psalm records for us here is what the psalmist is making mention of, of what this time was like. And when they got, finally got to the foothills of Jerusalem or, or Zion, it was like a dream. They finally got to go home and to come home and they were seeing it for the first time. Why this history lesson? Well, history is important. History is important here to God's people because it's sacred history. And in this sacred history, it's all about God because great praise and credit is given to Yahweh God because He restored them. He has done great things, they said. There was laughter, there was joy. And in the providence of God where He orders all the events of Israel's captivity and deliverance. He does this to show off his sovereignty, his goodness. And this deliverance was so sweet. It was like a dream. It was that good. This deliverance was so remarkable that even the Gentiles took notice. The surrounding nations, the non-God-fearing, Yahweh-fearing nations said, wow, The Lord had done great things for them. They knew that Israel was a great and powerful nation that none compared like them in the time of Solomon. And then how far they had 
fallen to be conquered and carried off to Babylon and ruined, no hope. And then all of a sudden, the march home. And the nation said, wow, Yahweh has done great things for them. And that's what's even more remarkable is that the nations confessed that it was not just any God or just luck that let them go home. It was, it was Yahweh God. It was the covenant God of Israel. It was the, the maker of heavens and earth. And the people of Israel agreed with them. You're right. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Their restoration led to their praise for what God had done. There was laughter. There was joy. Being conquered and hauled off into exile and then returning after 70 years, I would say, is cause for great joy, great praise. It's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of these pilgrims. Most of us have not had to have to live 70 years in captivity in Babylon. But perhaps you have lived through a, a hard time, a difficult time. And you live to tell about it. You live to see that there was a great restoration that took place when all seemed to be hope, when all seemed to be lost and no hope. God restores you, and you can look back on that time and say, you know, God did it. He is the one that deserves all the praise because He restored my fortunes during that difficult time. Perhaps it was your salvation up until the Lord saved you and brought you to a saving knowledge of Him. I mean, you lived one of those lives. <laughs> you had one of those experiences, and you were that bad. And God did a miraculous work in your life and restored you. And you say, only God could have saved me if you only knew me. Perhaps cancer. Whether you recovered from it or not, you can look back and see God did some amazing work there through that very difficult time. Perhaps loss, loss of a job, loss of a friend, loss of a parent. How hard and difficult those times are, but how many of us can look back and say, you know, but the Lord did a great work through that. And I praise Him. Perhaps you've lived through a time when you thought that the only way to survive, the only way that you were going to have any type of reprieve was to take your own life. You thought that was the way out. But the Lord rescued you from that. And now you can look back and say, praise God. He has saved me to praise Him and to help others. Brothers and sisters, those hard times, those difficult times, they're not times to curse God. They're times to ask God to teach us. They're times to look back and say, the Lord has great, done great things, even through those hard things, those difficult times. But I'm glad because he used it for my good, for our good. These Israelites, 70 years in captivity, 70 years it took for the Lord to bring about this work of restoration. And we can't wait 70 seconds on God to work. We, we've all been there. Personally, I look back on my own life. <clears throat> and at the age of 16, I lost my mother. That was a very hard time. That was a very difficult time. That's probably the worst time to lose a, a parent because we all know how unkind we are at the age of 16 at times. And I was that, 
that teenager. It was a difficult time, but the Lord used that to grow me up. Yes, I miss my mother. Yes, that was hard. It was difficult losing it. But I, but I can look back and think, you know, the Lord used that. And I'm glad he did. That was his goodness to me. Perhaps you've been through something like that. Derek Thomas says, It is by his providence that God orders all the events and details of everything that happens to us, individually and collectively, for divine purpose which we may or may not understand. And we can claim those promises from Romans 8, that wonderful promise that God works all things, both good and bad things, all things for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. All that to say that restoration from that should lead us to praise. Restoration from something that seemed impossibly difficult or hard or life-altering should lead us to praise the one who has, who has kept us, who has upheld us, who has allowed us to, to live. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, ask yourself this question. How has the Lord restored you from something difficult, from something hard, from something hopeless? And how can you praise Him for that? How can you praise Him? It was a great praise of restoration because how God had delivered them. Not only do we see a praise of restoration, but we see in verse 4 a prayer of restoration. Look what he says there. The psalmist says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. How does the psalmist react as he reflects on the goodness of God and all that he has done for them? What does he say? What does he think about that? He says, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Bring restoration to me again. Restore our fortunes, he says. This is a plea. This is a, a prayer. <clears throat> For God to bring blessing into His favor upon them like He did once before. And then He says something very odd. He says, will you restore our fortunes like the streams in the Negev? Now, how many times have we read, oh, yeah, the Negev, right. What's the Negev? Uh, we gotta, we got to get our Bibles out. we got to search. we got to say, what is the Negev? Well, I'm going to tell you what the Negev is. The Negev was a desert. It was a, a dry and arid, arid and barren place located south of Jerusalem in the southern part of the Holy Land. It was that place that was a wasteland to a degree. It was a desert. But what was remarkable about this place, this desert, is when the floodwaters <clears throat> would come off the mountains down into the valleys, down into the crags and form streams and rivers in the Negev, the place would literally change overnight into a beautiful, flowering, blossoming place that was unimaginable because the ground was so fertile there and the seeds were just waiting to be watered, waiting for beauty to explode. Uh, as I thought about this and what this must have been like, I've never been to the Negev, I've never been to the Holy Land, I'd like to one day. But I have been to a place that's very familiar to a lot of you in our congregation the Yakima Indian Reservation in Washington State. <clears throat> uh, we've, as a church, have gone out there. I believe this is the ninth summer now. And every time we go out there, we learn more and more about that place. 
<clears throat> but I remember early on in our first few trips out there, as we were beginning to learn about the reservation and how that reservation was formed, is that the government, when they started corralling the, the Native Americans and trying to give them their land to live on, formed the nation of Yakima and gave them all this land because, frankly, it was junk land. It was a desert. It was a wasteland. And there are even parts of it you can go to right now and think, I would die if somebody just dropped me off right there. So it was just bad, junky land. The government said, here, have this. Well, it wasn't long after the treaty was signed that some farmers came in and discovered that this was not junk land. It was, in fact, some of the most fertile land in the country. Because of the years and years of the volcanic eruptions from the, the great mountains that dumped ash into this valley and made this ground extremely fertile and extremely rich in nutrients. Perhaps you've been to the grocery store and this time of year I'm, I am looking for those Rainier cherries and those Washington State apples. <laughs> they are amazing because they're grown out there in this Extremely fertile land. Okay, so it's, it was a desert before. How did they do that? Well, they took water from the Yakima River and pumped it into the valley. And just a little water on this extremely rich soil, voila. Some of the most beautiful farmland and crops you have ever seen. But there's still plenty of places that are not farmed, that are not cared for. And it's a desert. And it's nothing. But all it took was a little water to bring this place to life. So what is the psalmist saying here? What is he praying for? Lord, flood us again with your grace. God, that was so good. That was so refreshing, so wonderful that when you restored us, do it again. Do it again. Make our lives blossom and flourish like the Negev after a rainstorm. Is this not a prayer that we need to be praying right now? Is this not a prayer that we can grab hold of and pray to God when we are spiritually dry, when life is just downright dry and hard and miserable? Pray, Lord, please, restore me, help me, save me, renew me. Shower me with your grace that I can feel your presence and know your presence and, and live in your presence. But why? Why do we turn inward in these times of spiritual dryness? You know, you've heard the Christian life described like a, a roller coaster, right? There's the valleys and then there's, there's the highs and then the lows. And oftentimes we feel like we're in the valley of that roller coaster and not coming out. And when the spiritual roller coaster goes down in the valley, why do we take our eyes off Jesus? When we're dry and parched and just don't feel God at all, why do we, why do, we do that? Why do we take our eyes off Jesus? Well, I think it's because we don't remember. We don't remember. We don't remember God's grace. We forget that Jesus died for us. We fail to hold on to the promises of God that He has given us, that He is for us, that He will never fail us. That wonderful promise in Romans eight thirty two. 
that God didn't spare His own Son. And if He didn't do that, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? If He's taking care of our greatest need, He'll take care of all of our needs. We have to remember. Remember what God has done through the good times and especially, especially the bad times, the hard times. And ask Him to flood us with His grace like He once did. As the pilgrims progressed toward Zion, they remembered, they, they, they were dreaming, it was so good. And as they were there and they got settled, Lord, do that again. Restore us again. And the next time, do me a favor, the next time that you find that you are down in the dumps, spiritually, the next time that you honestly say, I mean, I just do not feel God. The next time that you say, I am about as dry and washed up as they come spiritually, do these three things. I hate to give you steps, but these make sense. Pray a prayer of restoration. Lord, restore me, simply. Secondly, remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourselves. It's good news. Remember that good news. And the third thing, remember those times in the past when God flooded you with His grace in a very difficult time. Remember. So pray a prayer of restoration. Remember, meditate on the gospel. And remember when God showered you with His goodness from another difficult time in the past. This is the beauty and power and wonder of the gospel. God takes spiritually dry and difficult times like the Negev, and then he floods it with his grace. And there's life, and there's wonder, and there's joy abundantly. Pray. Pray for restoration. This morning, we've misplaced the communion cloths. So here it is, wide open in front. Thank you, Elder Kent Meadows, for reminding me of this. Restoration is right here in front of you as we prepare to come to the table. Come back to that in a minute. So there was a praise for restoration, a prayer of restoration. And the last thing we will look there in verses 5 and 6 is a promise of restoration. This promise of restoration is illustrated by sowing and weeping. It's what the, the language that the psalmist used, sowing and weeping. The word for sowing here is not knitting, but it's an agricultural term. It's an, an agricultural farming metaphor. Sowing is planting seeds. Planting seeds is not easy. If you've done any type of gardening or farming or getting the food plot ready for deer hunting, all those things, it takes a lot of work. It's hard work, it's labor, it's toil to get the ground ready to actually receive the seed. So he mentioned sowing, and then he talks about weeping, weeping, sobbing, crying. Those who weep are sometimes stricken by pain and loss and hard times, and sometimes just overjoyed to the point that all they can do is cry. So the psalmist illustrates for us here sowing and weeping. Pain and suffering, labor and toil. 
cultivating and watering. Is this not the exact way to describe the Christian life? It's not easy. Nobody at this church is going to tell you that the Christian life is happy, happy, happy all the time. It's hard. It's difficult. There's pain. There's suffering. There's labor. There's toil. Life is hard, sometimes painful. There's much sorrow and weeping at times. But is it not also true that pain and suffering and difficulty are the conduit through which God uses to flood your life with grace and with joy? It's like the gospel. The good news is not good until you know the bad news first. It's the same in our lives. God uses these hard and difficult things that you are going through right now to flood you with His grace. Does not God use the painful experience of exile for the Israelites, the tears, the weeping, the sowing, so that now they could reap shouts of joy and come home with shouts of joy, bringing their sheaves with them. Bringing their sheaves with them means the fruit of the harvest. means it's their crop. All that hard work and suffering and pain, it produced fruit. And the fruit of, their, uh, the fruit of restoration is their joy. They're bringing their joy with them because of restoration. Our difficult and hard times are reminders of God's grace. They are the sheaves that we bring with us to show what God has done, the great things that God has done in our lives. Our suffering is a reminder of the time we currently live in, the time between the two comings of Christ. There's a great harvest of joy coming. There's a complete and total restoration coming. There is a time coming when one moment in heaven, every tear will be wiped away. A Savior awaits us there. He is Christ the Lord, the one who shed tears for his friends, the one who sweated blood and tears in a garden before he went to the cross, the one who knows every one our tears. This is the great promise of restoration. Jesus is going to come and he's going to wipe away all our tears and there will be joy everlasting. Until then, we live in this process of, of suffering, of hardship, of labor and toil and then renewal. And these times are great reminders of the great things the Lord has done for us and the great things he, he will do. These blessings, these blessings only come after hard work and difficulty and waiting. One scholar, Derek Kidner, says on this psalm, so this psalm, speaking first to its own times, speaks still. Miracles of the past, it bids us treat as measures of the future. Dry places as potential rivers, hard toil and good seed as certain prelude to the harvest. What dry places, what hard places are you in right now? Are you having difficulty with your spouse, 
Have you just lost your job? Have you just gotten the diagnosis of, of cancer or some other terrible medical condition? Are you home from college and you just had a really tough year? A horrible year. And it just is overwhelming. Are you just overwhelmed with life in general? There are not enough hours in the day to do all that you have to do. These difficult times in your life are a prelude of how God can and will pour out his blessings upon you and ask him, Lord, shower me with your grace. Flood me with your grace. Restore me. Yes, life is hard, but it says that those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who sow the seed of good works for God will return with songs of joy, carrying a great harvest of blessing. This psalm is real life, isn't it? This is not some monk off in a room writing nice thoughts for life. This isn't just chicken soup for the soul stuff. And if that's your morning devotion, I'm sorry I wasn't going off. This is real life because it's filled with, with tears. It's filled with laughter. There are times in life when we're full of such joy and laughter and happiness that it doesn't seem like life could possibly get any better. It's like a dream. And then there's times when all we want to do is break down and cry and weep and give up. And this psalm recognizes that. We've already said this, quoting Athanasius, that much of the scripture speaks to us, but the psalms speak for us. This psalm speaks for us. these, These words of scripture know exactly how we are feeling. This is real life stuff. Go to the psalms. If you're not reading your Bible and don't even know where to turn, just go to the Psalms. For every condition, there's a psalm. For every point you are in your life, there's a psalm. Go to the Psalms. The Psalms teach us much about God. Both the Father and the Son know your sorrows. They count your tears. Jesus wept at at the tomb of one of his friends. Jesus knows your suffering. Jesus also knows that one day he will get the great joy to wipe away every tear from our eyes forever. And there will be an indescribable, unshakable joy that will last forever. I want to close by reading Psalm 126 from the message. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible written by Eugene Peterson. So it's there to help us devotionally. It's not inspired scripture itself. But listen, listen to how he describes Psalm 126. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned Zion's exiles. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives. So those who 
planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. That is what God will do in the great work of restoration. And that is what is before us now, restoration through Jesus on the cross.